the hurling as he said he, how much he hated Cork as well this fella just seems to hate everybody right so this is why I haven't joined the podcast just yet I think I might leave it off we might get a bit heated subscribe to the OTBGAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts off the ball daily now then you're very welcome along so the Sunday paper review we are live in studio here with Shane Keegan of Cove Rounders Shane hello how are you Joe well and Dion Fanning of the currency and of course Free State podcast with Joe Brawley Mr. Dion Fanning are you paid enough to talk to Joe Brawley for an hour and a half hour once a week <laughs> I, yeah well you know we, we're, in the, we're in constant negotiations about how much we're even going to speak to each other uh, uh, it's know. great people it's love it it's so good I mean it's uh, just great conversation so you must be delighted with the early reception it's great no it is I'm delighted it is good and it's great when you can talk about things that you want to talk mm. about and then find that people are happy to listen to what you're talking about I'm still working on them to do I want to do I want to talk about the ashes with Joe Brawley okay you know I'm I'm, I'm meeting some resistance <laughs> But I'm trying to push it, you know. There's a there's an uh, there's an Australian, you know. There's a and there's an Australian and you know post-colonial angle that I'm I'm working on. I'm sending him, you know, the occasional quote from uh, Australians about what it means to beat England in England. <laughs> See if he, he'll, he'll bite wet, on wet that. Wet his appetite. But, uh, I, had, uh, I had repeatedly told anybody who would listen to me that throughout our whole uh, UEFA Pro Licence course, the best speaker, oh, they had all these expert soccer speakers in for the UEFA Pro Licence course, and the best speaker we had throughout the Pro Licence was, was Pat Gilroy. Really? Yeah, he was outstanding. Yeah, yeah. He took a completely different approach. He, he came in without any PowerPoint presentation and said, I could talk for the next hour and a half and not tell you anything you want to hear. He handed around a piece of paper that we passed around between us. He said, everybody write down a question on that you'd like answered. We passed it around. We all wrote down a question. We got back to him. He will try to go down and answer each question. It was a brilliant approach. Right. Absolutely brilliant approach. Wow. Wasn't it? And took no preparation either. It's nope. time management. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> yeah, he was super. Yeah, yeah he was great. He was class. Yeah, yeah. No, he was, he was incredible. Incredible stories. Good man. Um, I'll give you the back pages first of all. So uh, the Sun have a glimpse of some of the football last night at Crow Park. Arma, Chance, Ghana, Began. So Rory uh, Began making a save. Very dramatic in the end between Monaghan and Arma. 20 penalties in the end. 17 of them scored. But uh, it's Monaghan who prevail. And then Clifford's jackpot. So Jack O'Connor very happy to have David Clifford, Body Clifford and a, a brilliant carry team on the evidence of yesterday. 218 to 12 points against Tyrone. Interesting story. Bottom of the Sun. Uh, this is Mason Greenwood. Uh, Richard Moriarty reports has been offered a football lifeline by Jose Mourinho at Roma. It seems has reached out to Mason Greenwood to say, come and play over uh, here. And then Manchester United search for a goalkeeper very much ongoing because uh, De Gea, David De Gea, is a target of Saudi Arabian club Al Nasser. Did you even have to ask? And uh, Kelly Harrington there bites her European gold medal after her win. Uh, yesterday, Sunday Independent, it's uh, Sean O'Shea celebrating uh, a stunning goal. I think it's stunning because of that David Clifford moment in the build-up, which people will remember for a very long time. O'Connor's delight as Kerry laid down marker. And that was the sense yesterday that Kerry had very much laid down a marker. A picture of, and I did feel really sorry for him, Callum Kumiski. It's bad enough to have to miss one penalty in a shootout. To have to miss two is a lot more than unfortunate. So he's got his jersey over his head and we see uh, celebrating Conor McManus. So the headline is The Agony and the Ecstasy. And uh, Six Nations teams uh, join rugby's new global contest. So this is very interesting if it happens. It will be Six Nations teams and Southern Hemisphere teams in a biennial uh, tournament 
from 2026 in the July and November windows. So that would really spice things up on the front page of the uh, Sunday Times. The Mail has Monaghan celebrations as their main picture, top of the stops. The Mirror then have... uh, Picture of David Clifford leading the pitch. Kerry very happy. Uh, O'Connor hails Clifford's skill but insists Kerry are no one-man team. And he, he did only score one point from play yesterday. David Clifford and Kerry were still very good. So I think that's performance of the championship thus far. Still um, tight-ish between Derry and Cork. Derry four points. Cork two points. On the uh, GA theme, a couple of pieces on GA go which uh, bowed out as of yesterday. That was the uh, final tranche of games for GA Go. So Eamon Sweeney on the back page of the Sunday Independent and Mick Clifford in the Sunday Times. I would say they both feel that this GA Go situation is far from locked in and done and has no questions to answer. I'll give you uh, the gist of Eamon Sweeney. Uh, he starts off by saying the GA Go deal and the RTE pay scandal are two sides of the same coin. Arrogance, greed and entitlement. So you get a sense early on of where he's going uh, with this. So in short, he talks about, um, well, Ireland at the moment, ripping people off, landlords, uh, rack rent tenants, hotels, inflate rates when there's a big event in town, energy companies, jack up prices, etc. Much of national unhappiness stems from the constant shaking down of those who must pay. The GEA, which will rake in millions from this weekend alone, adopted the same approach by conspiring with RTE to keep yesterday's two games off terrestrial television. Kerry's clash with Tyrone should have been available to all. It was a knockout tie between the last two All-Ireland football champions and as compelling a matchup as this year's competition is likely to produce. If that's not worth showing, what is? He says, saying that RTE are showing more games than ever is a weak argument. People don't expect every game to be televised, but they do expect games like Kerry Tyrone or Claire Limerick and Cork Tipperary to be shown. Quality matters as much as quantity. And he mentions how the Talchin Cup semis were um, very much on show in RTE, whereas the um, preliminary quarterfinals were on GA Go. He says that was indefensible. That they eventually showed Mayo Galway shows they knew this themselves. The original call suggested RTE felt their primary duty was to the GA hierarchy rather than the viewer. And he uh, says, finally, a streaming service does make sense for provincial championship games or when there's a packed programme. But the quarterfinals were the only two matches yesterday. Putting both on GA Go shows that RTE and the GA's real intention is to create their own version of Sky Box Office. He uh, finishes by saying GA must go. RTE needs to free itself from this clammy embrace. The GA would be better off out of it. And he does earlier on note David Clifford pretty much played once free to air this year and once this month is done it's Rugby World Cup it's a Women's Soccer World Cup it's Six Nations it's Premier League all taking centre stage and uh, the GAA used to be concerned about competition from other sports now it seeds half the summer to those sports and it hides away its big games maybe they believe the games are so popular the nation will keep supporting them no matter what Fianna Fáil and the Catholic Church used to think like that it's a fair summation of Eamon Sweeney's take on GAA Go yeah, it's. Uh, I wouldn't disagree with it, and I think when you when you start, you know, when you're saying about the, you know, what will GA go look like going forward, uh, which you know there was a talk a while ago about there will be a review of, of how it's worked. But I think when you're looking in the papers today and you're saying what, what actually what we're dealing with, what will RTE look like going forward? Like we're in we're into a situation where. 
Uh, Eamon links the two and he's right. And I was writing about this in the examiner yesterday as well. And it's the same point that you can't separate what's happened this week or over the last 10 days in RTE with like the GA go in, in many ways encapsulates and McFoley mentioned this as well, that tension between public service broadcasting and uh, you know the, the uh, commercial revenue that RTE pursue, as we've seen, um, you know, in ways that, like we saw this week in the Oireachtas Committee, they 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 pursue that commercial revenue in ways that are, are kind of have had no oversight, have been like extraordinary to most people looking in, and one one supports the other in a way that seems unsustainable now, and when it comes to GA go as it come as it as it is with like you you know Eamon Sweeney mentions it there. Uh, I was struck looking back this week on what was said at the during the original GA GA go controversy, and Virgin made this statement. And I know the GA uh, rebutted some of it, but one of they said was the RTE now have more games than they know what to do with. Now, how we've got into that position, and this this is why the the, the thing is linked as well. You have RTE hoarding, hoarding their talent by paying them more money than they would get anywhere else, hoarding advertisers by by uh, entertaining them in a way that, again, there was very little oversight over, and then hoarding games by asking a license fee payer to pay twice to watch games. And this is a fun- fundamental flaw in GA Go from the RTE point of view. It was fine when it was for the diaspora, when there were people who want to see games. And I, you know... When I lived in London, I would go down to, you know, before, you know, you go down to the sort of the Irish pub to watch matches, all that kind of stuff. But the Irish diaspora aren't paying a license fee. You're now asking people who pay a license fee uh, to pay again to RTE. Now, if you think there's no difference between that and paying Sky, well, then you don't really, un- you, then, then there's no point in public service broadcasting. Because there, you know, if you're if you believe in public service broadcasting, and RTE use it as a shield so often, uh, and one of their lines, and you know, the, if you even go back to that World Cup rugby World Cup story, when they defend when they defended that, they will say that they are required to maximise their commercial revenue uh, in pursuit of public, you know, to fulfil their remit of public service broadcasting. That clearly they got carried away with that, um, and. It is just, it is a, fl- a flawed concept. If you believe in the things that are, if you believe in public service broadcasting, um, then there, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be on an RT-owned station. Eamon Sweeney's piece is very much about the absence of big names and big teams on terrestrial television, whereas Mick Foley, I think, is more concerned with your point in the main, Dion. The headline of his piece is RTE needs to clarify its role in modern media landscape. And so... Uh, He says the question whether RTE holding a chunk of pay-per-view business is a suitable arrangement for a public service broadcaster already showing other games free to air in a tiny media landscape will surely come into that debate. And that is a key question. Now, there's going to be an Oireachtas committee, which generally solves all of our problems in life, of course. July 12th, the future of sports broadcasting. I I think this was prompted on on the back of the GEA Go controversy when it arose at the start of the season. So I think RTE and Virgin and everybody concerned really will be at that um, hearing. But I suppose 
people have really been struck by the conflict of interest whereby um, there are board members on GA Go who are very much of RTE and if there's a juicy game are you fighting tooth and nail for the license fee payer or are you thinking God that could really help GA Go which I also have an obligation to and need that to be a success and that is a real conflict. You, you couldn't possibly argue that it's not a conflict of interest. I mean, how what sane argument can they give and what argument are they going to try and give in, in that Oroctus, um committee report? Like, first of all, I found that interesting. I didn't know that was coming up. That will be interesting to see how that goes now, as you say, whether anything actually and, real comes out of something like uh, this other than TDs yeah. getting a chance to fight for their corner of the well, country. There'll be some grandstanding for sure. I think in some ways that quelled the controversy a little bit because it was just bubbling and bubbling and well we you know Declan McBennett was on the 6-1 and it was well, who's going to be interviewed next and then it was Iraqis going to look into this July 12th and that seemed to smooth can't, things over in the short term. Well I think they also yeah. there was brought up in the Public Accounts Committee on Thursday as well I think Alan Dillon in one of the many things that the RT executives were asked to bring back in the coming week they were asked for can we get see the uh, subscriber numbers for GEA Go Right. So they they mm. they they promised to come back with them, along with lots of other things. Uh, now it, again, it, but it shows that it is in the it is in that con- that committee conversation for, for the week after. But it's also in people's thinking in regards to this, and I I think ultimately it's going to be overtaken by what we're going to see, which is I think looking very much like some kind of breakup of RTE, and uh, I think that's. You know, GA Go will be, maybe be a casualty of that, and I think it should be because one of the things that, and you know, we're we're speaking on a you know a commercial platform, so like none of us, none of us comes you know with none of us comes without an interest in this area. If you work in media, uh, and uh, you know, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who said, you know, we're in the wrong business, and I said, well, no we're actually in the same business like that's the problem like we're actually in uh, you know when you look at the RTR we're in the same business but everything like is so geared towards like this conversation has been so much about RTE RTE without saying like RTE effects in a way that is is disproportionate every other media organisation in the country and you know when people say this thing about the high earners uh, and you know about GA Go and about the advertisers is usual. Where would they go? Mm. That's fine, but actually, maybe we should be asking why isn't there somewhere else for them to go? Why has RTE sucked everything in uh, in a way that isn't just about public service broadcasting? Because people are doing public service broadcasting in in journalism in in journalistic in journalism outlet newspaper outlets broadcast radio outlets across the country that isn't isn't supported by a license fee, that's fine. But they don't have a monopoly. They have a monopoly on a lot of things, but they don't have a monopoly on good journalism. And yet they've sucked, they've, they've pulled everything in. And including, you know, rights. I think even going beyond GA Go, I think there was a, a few years ago, I think somebody at Virgin said, you know, should there be, is it right that so many of the top 20 sporting events are appearing on RTE? Like, how have we let, let this... Now it's changed a bit, obviously, with you know the rugby, but again, it's it's a. Mm-hmm. I think this this conversation initially was always it seemed immediately it's going to be more than about Ryan Tuberty. It's going to be about how RTE is structured, and I think when they start getting into that, we will actually look at how the media mm. is structured in re- in response to that because there's an awful lot of 
challenges for the media that go way beyond, you know, fixing RTE isn't going to solve the challenges the media face. But in a small country like Ireland, they have been allowed to kind of take up, you know, get too much control over so many things without the oversight, as we saw this week, that they probably should have. Look, it's not, obviously... Joe, even when we were talking about what we were going to chat about today, it, you know, you are, it's not a new argument, it's not a new discussion, it's been going on a, a, a bit of time now at this stage, but I, I do think both Foley and Sweeney do make a couple of good points on it, I mean, I, I like Damon's line that, that subscribing to Sky is a choice, but subscribing to RTE is a legal requirement, um, I mean, that's that's where we're at, I, I, I would regard myself as fairly logical and less emotional and having spent 15 20 years in commercial advertising um you know i would see the need that the dollar rules and that decisions are going to be based on that and yet i must have had my head buried in the sand for the week because i was literally driving home yesterday to, to head back to watch kerry and tyrone when autonomy is this actually on tv and then checking mm. and finding out it wasn't i was livid I was I was livid, I swear. It just it just that's what took over. The emotion just took over inside me. I was like, What? Um and uh I don't know, do I get locked up upon leaving the building if I say I went looking for somebody else's GA go login details was the only way I could find around uh, yeah. to try well, you see, but that that is a thing as well, and like this is a broader and it is more true the GA side of it that is it was always like the sky deal was gonna bring in people wasn't it was it was taking money from people Maybe GA people are going to pay it as well, but you're actually getting Sky's money um, and Sky subscribers' money. The casual sports fan, that money was going towards the GA, whereas this was this thing was structured like the casual sports person, or not the casual, but the kind of I'm I'm not going to get a GA Go subscription. I'm just not like it's not like I, I would now again like you yesterday. I was like I want to watch Kerry Tyrone. Yep. Uh, and I was going to go, and then I, 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 I got sucked into the cricket, which we will talk about. But uh, true, Gale. Yeah, yeah. But I, um, but I, I did. Uh, but I wanted to watch it, and again, you feel. But I was like, I'm not going to. And then the way the match went out, I was, played out. I was glad I hadn't spent a one-off fee to watch it. But you know, I'm not going to do that. Whereas the people, you're actually you're making demands of the people who are most committed. Like that was that is one of the big flaws from the point of view of the GA, which is hugely admirable in terms of how they actually see themselves. Mm. And, and like, you know, and then to say right now, the most committed people, the people who most get most out of the GA, who want to watch the most, who want to watch Gaelic games the most, we're going to go to you first. And maybe somewhere down the line in a quarterfinal stage, we'll pick up a few people among the, the more casual supporters. But first and foremost, the people we want to get the money from are the people who really want to watch it, and that that was flawed from the GA's point of view. And it, like RTE, like they 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 can't have their hand. They, you know, they they I've written about this before. They had Paddy Power sponsorship of of their football coverage. You know, they've they they got a rap in the knuckles for previously for Paddy Power sponsorship of a Ryan Tuberty program. Uh, I was reading in the paper today about how you know Paddy Power was a a client of Noel Kelly as well. Like that's that's an, an interesting aspect of that. But they they've done things in in pursuit of these dual and this dual funding that you would ask is that is that right for a public service broadcaster? Mm. Uh, and again, we're all we're all 
we're all in a we're all in a small market, so you can be accused of uh, you know speaking you know with a vested interest. But there there are certain things that you know a public service broadcaster should be doing as a public service broadcaster, and the Gaelic game, you know owning a, owning a pay per view station really doesn't mm. seem to fit with that. Uh, for clarity, I mean Paddy Power perfectly entitled to be. Working with Noel Kelly, or but totally else. entitled to be working. They see fit to work with. Yeah, absolutely. No, but I think I the, 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 sorry. The rap and the knuckles was that it hadn't been, uh, it hadn't been um, made made apparent, declared, okay. declared made okay. apparent uh, when when Ryan Tuberty was interviewing Paddy Power at Cheltenham. Okay, that Fair their involvement enough. in the show, uh, not with Noel Kelly. That wasn't. Uh, yeah. Um, Anything you want to add, or you? Yeah, look, I, I suppose word, the only yeah, word. yeah, like uh, again, the Sweeney article just makes a, a mention of of the Kerry Eye um, editor Sylvester Hennessy's comments, and I know it might seem like such an easy argument to make the whole "What about me, me poor father who can't turn on the laptop?" But what about me poor father who can't turn on the laptop? I think it is a, a reasonably legitimate kind of argument to make as well that even if you, in some cases, Dion's talking about going after the people who have the want, going after the diehards. What if you have the want, you're the diehard, you have the financial resources to be able to pay for this, but you're just actually not able to. You're like it's not, You don't know how to stream things. You're not going to sit down and watch something on a laptop. Not um, unsympathetic to that point, but how many people are we talking about? My, my father would not... I'd forget about it if I was trying to explain to my father how to watch that game on okay. GA yesterday. Yeah, not I'm, not, I'm not unsympathetic Honestly. to it, but it, it is often used and I just wonder... I'd say there's a fair there's a fair proportion out there I would think still yeah. who uh, would definitely struggle with that idea or relying on family members to yeah. have the yeah. no yeah. fair enough fair and, enough and la- Joel la- like again if I'm just whinging and cribbing about things here and the the, the RTE monopoly on events and that um, just from somebody who's a, a neutral in the whole thing like it does lead me to think about people in your situation where the GA coverage I thought of the live games on here was absolutely fantastic. They then disappeared. Like when you're looking at all of this going on from your perspective, it, like it has to get you a bit annoyed and angry and agitated as well. I wouldn't have the company of you and Dion if we had commentary of this match now. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have been cute enough to wait for the second one anyway. Blessing. I think there's a blessing. You definitely would have been cute enough to wait for the second one. Um, well, let's park it. I mean, and that uh, committee is on July 12th. So this thing is going to bubble right up again in a couple of weeks time. Just two interviews side by side. I don't know if they're great discussion points necessarily, but I think you'd have to say kudos to the Sunday Times for getting them because they're interesting and they're a bit different. So uh, one is Don McLean talking to Jessica Harrington because today is the Dubai duty free Irish Derby Day and Harrington has a horse where she's hoping to uh, win the race very well. But uh, I suppose it's more her battle with cancer over the last nine months, which looms large. And Don McLean does a great job of just charting her rise as a trainer. Started in the 1980s. Back then, a female trainer was a rare thing. And when owners would call to ask about their horses, they would often ask to speak to Jessica's husband, the late and much missed Johnny Harrington. That soon changed. And he lists off the achievements of Harrington, which uh, go on and on. She won the Galway Hurdle in 1994 with Oh So Grumpy. The Ladbroke Hurdle 96 with Dance Beat, won the Midlands Grand National in 1998 with Miss Orchestra and then won just about everything with Moscow Flyer. And it's been success after success. She has embraced uh, flat racing in recent times and Don says predictably 
she has reached the very top level there too. She has finished in the top five in the Irish Flat Trainers Championship every year since 2017. But the past nine months very difficult. Dealt a sledgehammer blow in October, diagnosed with breast cancer. She said, I reckoned when I was being diagnosed that it was going to be cancer. I was ready for it. So when we get the results, when the doctor said stage three, stage four, aggressive, I was okay. This is your programme, he said. This is how we're going to beat it. And I was up for it. I was helped by the fact I was healthy before I started the treatment. And I knew I was going to have a positive attitude. You don't want to be negative. You don't want to give cancer a chance. It helped too that I live in a wonderful place. So uh, 16 rounds of chemotherapy. Uh, She plays it down, writes Tom McLean, but she was in hospital numerous times with uh, lung issue or uh, clot or various um, hurdles. But uh, recent tests all came back negative after chemotherapy. So she starts a three week uh, run of radiotherapy next. That starts on Wednesday and then she'll have immunotherapy until the start of October. But Don McLean says she is strong and sharp and healthy and well and she will be at the Cur this afternoon. Again, it's not a great discussion point in the way GEA Go was, but um, it's an interesting piece, good piece. Yeah, uh, I suppose I'll be honest on this, Joy. I probably hadn't um, turned to this article until you, you sent through the text yourself, just kind of highlighting it. Um, it. It definitely was one that I... Um, definitely one that I enjoyed, I suppose... I am the son of a strong, independent uh, woman who works in a male-dominated uh, world um, who has also come through breast cancer. Um, so there was serious kind of parallels and I can see every inch of my mother in this as I'm reading through it. Um, and from that, for that reason alone, I thought it was excellent. She, she, look, she's a remarkable woman, so she is. There's no doubt she's a remarkable woman before she had to battle through, through uh, mm. breast cancer. That's for sure already in the things that she achieved in in her professional life. But, uh, yeah, I'll tell you, you she's not somebody you'd get the better of. I'm no. pretty sure. Be, no. be, be you a rival or be you cancer. Curious to know what the response was when they asked back in the 80s, could they speak with her husband? <laughs> <laughs> I presume she said no. Again. Yeah, I'd say I was met with the same kind of you know, response. Like, yeah. Um, no, it's, it, it is. And it's, it's extraordinary. And it's not, you know, I don't know. Like, I only know... Jessica Harrington from seeing her interviewed, you know, at race meetings and things like that. But it doesn't her approach to dealing with this seems entirely, you know, just in keeping, you know, having a plan, having and like, you know, and anyone, you know, anyone who knows anyone who's gone through like it's, you know, when you just see the 16 rounds of chemotherapy, like it's, you know, the, the, you know, the, the way, you know, it's just trying to keep yourself healthy, avoid infections, all these things that are the awful grind of having, you know, that illness. Just, and just, I, I would say, Dion, like you would say, like the concept of poor me, just, I'd say, never once ever entered that woman's head. No. Do you know what I mean? It just, there was mm. pity parties just were never, ever going to be entertained. It's, right, what's the, the process for getting through the other side of this and let's rock on and do it. Because the papers are full, actually, of interviews from the various media days over the past week of Republic of Ireland female footballers and uh, quite a few of them are saying they didn't really have role models growing up so you know it's kind of interesting you see very quietly Jessica Harrington's been doing her thing since late 80s early 90s and still going strong thankfully and just beside that again this is one of those pieces I I, I just I would have flicked by it and I came back to it and I flicked by it and I came back to it and um, with Wimbledon starting this week I would be unaware really as a very casual tennis fan these days increasingly of Daria Kazastinka Kazatinka, 
I'm butchered a name, I'm sure. Uh, so she's uh, tennis world number 11, 11 seed at Wimbledon, and she's the Russian number one tennis player. And I, you know, because we tend to highlight the high profile players or footballers or various sports people who don't speak out against Russia. But in fairness to her, this is um, really remarkable. So Daria Kazazinka, uh, she's um, at the start of the interview, she, a, a Ukrainian spectator comes up to her at, in one of the warm up events for Wimbledon and gives her a big hug and commends her for her courage. And so you kind of think, well, that's interesting. She's the number one Russian player. And she has been very overt in criticising the country. And it's come at significant personal cost. She said, she's 26 years old. I want to be able to respect myself when I look in the mirror. And if being a good person means I have to sacrifice my home, that's my choice. And she mentioned the person hugging her. And she said uh, it meant a lot to me. So she's won six WTA titles, world ranking of 11. Um, she has very much disavowed Vladimir Putin. She's come out publicly as well last summer as gay. And that uh, brought a harsh an enduring spotlight in her home country. It's unsafe for me now with the regime we have as a gay person who opposes the war. It is not possible to go home. But I don't regret it even one percent. When the war started, everything turned to hell. I felt very overwhelmed. I just decided F it. Couldn't hide anymore. I wanted to say my position on the war and my sexuality, which was tough coming from a country where being gay is not accepted. But I felt like I had a backpack of stones on my shoulders and I just had to throw it off. Afterwards, I faced a few consequences. But the only thing that worried me was my parents. They are fine and they're proud of me. And so um, she has still kind of um, been ignored by Ukrainian players like that's been bullying away in the tennis circuit. So in the main, they're, they're not shaking hands. But one player did offer her a thumbs up at the French Open, which she really appreciated. And uh, then her own kind of stories. Amazing. She's from a town called Toliati, industrial city, 500 miles from Moscow. Um, organized crime after the collapse of the Soviet Union, a lot of drug problems. And her parents, when she was 12 years of age, sold her house to help her pursue her tennis dream. Imagine at 12, your parents selling their house. She says, it was difficult to accept that kind of pressure. No kidding. One year we spent $6,000 on visas alone. Uh, she has subsequently earned 8 million sterling and counting in prize money. So, uh, again, I would have flicked by both these pages when I initially scanned the papers, but they're both um, worth touching on and I will be looking out for her at Wimbledon which I guess is kind of the point of these pre-Wimbledon pieces the, the bit about the Ukrainian players not shaking her hand felt so unfair yeah really did that was you're Russian you're Russian you're Russian end of but maybe they don't realise she's spoken out as much as she has you know? possibly not possibly not because you're reading it and you know you're, you're, you're kind of forming a relationship with her as, as you're reading the piece and she comes across as such an, an impressive individual that you know, to completely tar somebody just because of their, their nationality like that. But look, then again, you know, I'm not in a great position. I'm not going through what Ukrainian people yeah. are going through, but it did seem very unfair based on the individual we're speaking about. Yeah, they might continue to warm. If they gave her a thumbs up in Roland Garris, it might extend to a mm. handshake at uh, Wimbledon. But it is impressive, Dion. It is. And I think, you know, what you say about it is actually one of those pieces where you will, having read it, sit up and kind of go, OK, I'm going to pay attention. And like you... Like the, uh, the 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 ranks of tennis players is becoming so uninspiring mm. uh, at the moment. You know, something like Wimbledon that you would, you know, historically look forward to. Uh, you kind of need something like this. You need something to go. Okay, there's somebody I can now uh, yeah. look out for um, and get attached to in some way um, because there there isn't a lot. You know, it doesn't it doesn't excite 
really the way the way it, it did um and uh it's uh, no it's it's no it's an extraordinary story and you know i would yeah i'd have some sympathy for ukrainian you know a lot of sympathy for ukrainians maybe Shane, who who decide not to you know because mm-hmm. their their starting point is uh you know what what uh what um russia has done to their country but uh and the broader question is is it a, is it our age or is it the lack of um Personality. Why? Why? I was massive into tennis know. when I was younger. Massive into yeah. tennis when I was younger. I could not mm. tell you who's who on the circuit now. Yeah, I suppose it is. It's the aftermath of the kind of the big beasts, kind of you know, fading away. And uh, um, I guess you know there hasn't been so. Like I, I started watching that. I've started watching that Netflix mm. tennis thing, and I was like, still, you know, mm. this is this is not. I know why the I know why every organization and every sporting body wants to do these, but I would advise you not to do this yeah, because you know narcissistic tennis players. Like it just it just was a, a really tough watch. Apparently, the Tour de France one is good. Yeah, so I haven't watched it yet. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm saving that. Well, Daria Kasatkina is her name. So uh, keep an eye out maybe at Wimbledon. Now you're welcome, Max. So we're going through the Sunday papers. Dion Fanning and Shane Keegan are here. Uh, just a touch, can I um, rudely drag you to golf for just two minutes? Because, like, I kind of, I just enjoyed um, <laughs> Westwood and Poulter. Uh. <laughs> Have a bit of this world. Uh, we were right all along is the general vibe of this interview. So there are, there are two golf pieces because what's happened here is that Live Golf is just over a year old and obviously there's been the big merger. And what's more, they are at Valderrama at the moment. Now, Valderrama is like where the 1997 Ryder Cup was on. You know, Seve's spiritual homeland in some respects. He was the captain. And it is for the European tour was just one of those real mainstay stops akin to Wentworth. You know, Valderrama, great course, tradition. And so what did Liv do? They snuck in last year and they said to Valderrama, do you want to host our event instead and kick the European tour to the curb? And Valderrama said, well, yes, we do. Uh, So... Generally, it's the first European stop. They'll be in London next week. So there's a couple of pieces. Ewan Murray has gone over uh, to Valderrama and Tom Kershaw went over to Valderrama as well. He's interviewed Poulter and Westwood. Ewan Murray, first of all, his is more just an assessment of where they are. And um, I mean, in fairness, if you want to see why Liv is making some inroads, I don't know if the audience is big, but uh, Liv has taken over Valderrama, famous Spanish venue, intrinsically linked to the European game. Open champion Cameron Smith is here. So is US PGA champion Brooks Kepka. There's also Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, Graham McDowell, Ian Poulter, Lee Westwood, Henrik Stenson, Garcia, Patrick Reed, Bryson DeChambeau. Whereas the British Masters is the European Tour offering this week and it basically has Justin Rose and zero star power is the truth. And if you watch the PGA Tour this week, the Rocket Mortgage Classic in Detroit, zero star power. So like the best golf tournament on this week, if you park any issues is the live event and like by a distance. So um, post-merger, Ewan Murray finds all the live players kind of pretty happy. (laughs) So Paul Casey signing autographs. Look at this. And he says, the edginess is gone. The uncertainty is gone. Martin Keimer, I'm proud of my decision. We got a lot of SH1T from the media, from people who didn't know that much about it. We got so much crap from them. But there's a real vibe of look at us now. Uh, So that's that's the mood that Ewan Murray finds. And then Tom Kershaw interviews in matching T-shirts because they both play for the Majestics, uh, one of the teams on Live Westwood and Poulter. 
I like it's great stuff. They're just, um, you know, <laughs> uh, Westwood's 50, Poulter's 47. They got 20 million each to join the Breakaway um, tour. Uh, Poulter, I've worked tirelessly to provide. I don't feel guilty for earning good money. People have said, haven't you earned enough money? Aren't your kids going to have enough? What gives them the right to tell me what's enough? We'd all like to earn more. And if you don't think that, I think you're lying. When I was born, no one stamped on my arse how much money I was allowed to earn. This is a statement Ryan Tuckerty <laughs> needs to come out and make. <laughs> Um, Poulter by the way you know like it's funny he he is talking here about the fact that the European tour imposed a fine on players for leaving the European tour and like going to a rival tour which like took them to court and like trying to take them down he said I asked for releases to play global golf for 25 years and I was never denied one so then to be denied one and fined for these events it's just extremely unfair he says again not realising that the live tour was trying to destroy the European tour in many ways um, the biggest disappointment he says is being hung out to dry not being part of the Ryder Cup again the Ryder Cup is a European Tour event and he's like it's a disgrace I'm not in the Ryder Cup team it's absolute shambles you know it's a massive disappointment um, I played in 11 Ian's played in 7 said Lee Westwood um, there's just a sense that they have been screwed over that they were right all along uh, the reason I sleep well is because my kids will be the ones to judge me at the end of the day. I know what I've done. I know, I know what I've done the Ryder Cup and I feel comfortable. Uh, that's why I sleep 10 hours a night, says Ian Poulter. <laughs> I mean, the most remarkable thing is that anyone in the world sleeps 10 hours a night, but Poulter does. And uh, Westwood says of his legacy, he doesn't care about his legacy. It's just an opinion. I couldn't give two hoots what someone else says. When I'm uh, on my deathbed, this is what Steve Peters, the psychologist, has advised him to how to frame things. Uh, my family won't be saying, yeah, he's a great golfer, could have been a better putter. Or will they say he was a good dad, always looked after us, always cared for us. That's what matters. So um, I'd say they're buoyant. Like the, the merger has happened. It's a two fingers to everyone. We've made lots of money and we don't care. And like the human rights thing, there's a real sense of, why would you bring that up? I well, mean, that's, that, yeah. like, that's not even a thing to bring up anymore. Well, that's, we see the, the, the thing that, what, yeah, exactly. Because that's everybody's problem now. You know, it's no longer the it's no longer their problem. Yeah. Uh, and like you know, Westwood, like the two of them, but like Westwood, you know, his his complete inability to deal with those questions at the original live live press conference was was astounding. Like that he hadn't seen, uh, you know, and, and the way the the the, the absolute PR disaster that was yeah. the, the, those the, that my, press conference. My favorite from those was when. It was the two of them side by side and uh, one of the journalists said as Cork maybe score a goal no it's wide still 8-5 Derry said um, it was either to Poulter or Westwood but there was a degree of uh, Ian is there anywhere you wouldn't play? <laughs> like, would you play in apartheid South Africa? Would you play in Putin's Russia? Yeah, I don't have to answer that question. It was a hypothetical. Yeah. And then Westwood said it's hypothetical. Poulter said, yeah, it's a hypothetical. What? I don't have to answer a hypothetical question. That's the rule, right? No one has to answer a hypothetical question about anything. So a year on to see them both like all smile. Well, yeah. Well, also just, like as as a, cause I'm just as, you know, if you want to know the question, like who 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 won in the in the in the in the live versus you know, the establishment? Yeah. This is your answer. Oh, and and here's like here's a cheat for the listeners. They they really don't need to read the article. Just have a look at the <laughs> photo. <laughs> Just have a look at the photo because if you ever needed to see two cats that got the cream, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you've got the two of them smiling out at you in their lovely tops right all, there. All that's missing in the bottom corner is a picture of Roy McIlroy Roy looking sad. Yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, yeah. But it's funny they say Rory you is... have a Rory yeah. comment, yeah, don't they? they? Do, yeah, they yeah. do, My relationship with Rory is as good as it always was, Polter says. He's still a friend. That cannot <laughs> there is, be the case. There is, there is that air. That's, that's like, again, another person who, uh, you know, he has, has, well has, well like, yeah. has that air of the kind of Richard Keyes blog. You know, even the even the ten hours, like you know, the, the ten hours, <laughs> ten that hours are, that's classically somebody who thinks actually I sleep seven hours. But if if I say seven hours, will people question? Like is that is a bit in kind yeah. of a grey area? So I better be more emphatic mm. and say ten hours. You know, as you're right, nobody sleeps ten hours a night no. past the age of seven. <laughs> and uh, I don't think you've been, to te- you know, but like it's just uh, it is just that kind of I you know w- with the actual. The thing they have that Richard Keyes doesn't have is that they don't have any. They've actually got everything is is fallen for them. Yeah, they they actually have yeah, one. Yeah, they, they they have one. Yeah. Whereas you know Keyes he has that sense of injustice. Well, look, recently married last week, he's happy. Yeah, you know, he, life he brought out a corker of a blog in the in the wake of that. Oh, did he? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah I must. Yeah. I must read that. Actually, the one um, I I I think I would have no problem incorporating the Keyes blog into the Sunday paper review, but that would be the only <laughs> exception. <laughs> Um, so yeah, look, that's that's the the live vibe from Paul Casey signing autographs, turning to journalists, saying, "Look at this! Like we're we, we're here to yeah. Poulter and Westwood." Like, Poulter basically just stopped short of saying, "Rory's just going to have to suck it up." <laughs> <laughs> No, it is. It is basically yeah, if you remember Spinal Tap when the uh, if you ever saw that movie Spinal Tap <laughs> yeah. when the manager got deposed uh, and the girlfriend of one of the band members took over, and then at the end of the movie. Uh, he's back in charge, and he, his his trademark was a cricket bat, and he's there standing standing at the back of the concert watching the band play, and he's just sitting there with the cricket bat <laughs> in his hand, back in control of the empire. And this is this is this is uh, Poulter and Westwood here, totally in totally in control, masters of all they they uh, survey. Yes, stop cramming in cricket references. I'll let you talk with the ashes. I promise. Like you're, you're, I feel like you're Darren Brown here sowing seeds psychologically with me. He's told me outside he's actually scheduled his whole working week around the ashes. Well, I you realize, know, as I, 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 I work for like. myself these days, I can, <laughs> I can do that. I'm looking at the um, the ad situation. So is, is seven minutes enough, Ashes, or do you need more time? Well, I, 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 can, I can do it, I think. I'm actually, I being here, I have to say, you know, you talk about, you know, if you had GA coverage. As you said that, I was like, oh, again, another reason to, to despise how... You know, uh, the media has been organised in Ireland because I was like, when, the minute I agreed to this, I was like, this is a terrible mistake. Oh, yeah. This is the fifth day of the ashes of the of uh, the second test. Yeah, and it is it is critical. What is, what is uh, what's going on right our, now? Our starting point was who won't be that interested in the ga <laughs> that we might be able to get on. We never thought about the ashes. We thought about the ashes. And what uh, you what you weren't aware of was at half time in Derry and Cork as you were facing this way talking to Joe the boys did put on cricket they, for yeah. briefly oh, there yeah, over your head. So yeah. sorry, what is the what is what is the state of play in the Ashes 2023? Is this an exciting Ashes is, this, it is, is well is, like the last time I really got on board with it Freddie Flintoff was locked outside yeah, right. Downing Street. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, no, it is, it is very exciting, Ashes. Uh, it is, there is, England have an incredibly exciting, dynamic team. Um, ben Stokes is their captain, who, who made a century today in kind of record time, like extraordinary batsman, uh, um, and a kind of very clever, kind of despite his appearance, which is kind of slightly, you know, uh, not wide boy, but kind of he doesn't look like he's a very cerebral captain uh, and they've pursued this philosophy that's known as Basball which is named after their coach Brendan McCollum and I mentioned in, in the in the WhatsApp which wouldn't be quite correct it's like is there like is there parallels with the Stephen Kenny era 
in, in Irish football because basketball is about kind of eliminating the draw from, from test cricket and going to win at all at, as much as you trying to win a match as much as, ca- as you can but by taking the draw out of the equation which comes with a fair degree of risk okay it's aggressive it's aggressive making declarations trying to do things now it's controlled and it's meant to be uh, intelligent risk yes um, a better viewing spectacle much better viewing spectacle much more entertaining but there is also, Stokes has a kind of, he, he gave an interview the day before the, the first test, which England lost. He gave an interview where he talked about how they would pursue this philosophy. Mm-hmm. And he said, and England have done very well with it. They've won most of their matches, which is maybe where it, it, yeah. it separates from the Stephen Kenny era. But they've done well with it. But the Ashes is a different thing. The Ashes is the real test. And he gave this interview before the test. And he said, well, we'll we're going to pursue this philosophy. And we hope it does well. But if it doesn't, ah, well. Oh, and you could hear the BBC kind of spluttering at this idea that this was how you would uh, approach an Ashes series, and they lost the first test, and they are now—I don't know what's happened in the last hour—they were on. They're very unlikely to win the second test, which would mean in a best-of-five series mm. um, uh, that they would be in big trouble, really. But they also have kind of. In in uh, during the course of this test match, kind of abandoned, like the most uh, extreme. They first of all pursued the kind of baseball idea into kind of crazy lens, which was hitting ridiculous shots, not thinking. Almost like T Twenty style, go for it. Yeah, well, there's yeah. a lot of that anyway in Test cricket now, but okay. just kind of doing, making bad decisions. Uh, and then yesterday, there was this extraordinary day where. Both sides, but then Eng- Australia started, but then England took it up and just started bowling, essentially just bouncers for the day. 97% of their balls yesterday were bouncers. Trying to get people. Well, well, bouncers is balls that are, you know, basically balls into the body of the batsman on the leg side, trying to get them to hook or pull the ball. And you might do it occasionally, but to actually just have... Now, for people who don't like cricket, they might think this, this is, you know, for me to say what I'm going to say next, it makes it quite boring as a spectacle, you know, because they're just going into just one ball over and over again, trying to get people out that way. And... Uh, and why is that not the done thing? Why is that not a go-to ball? Well, it's a go-to ball occasionally, but it's just, you know, there there is a... Uh, there is, you know, you... you I suppose, like it, it's, but it has been like if you, you know, the body line tour. Like it is, it is also seen as something you only do sparingly. Why? Because it's, it's kind of, is it, is it the way you like? Is it's it the an way? Ethical thing. Is, well, a, yeah. Is it that the way you really want to play cricket? Oh, because you're flinging you know? the ball at, at the. Well, that, that's a pretty. Yeah, no, it's not. A, it's, it hasn't been. It wasn't hugely aggressive yesterday with England because their bowlers aren't fast enough, but. Uh, it's yeah, it, and it's also just stifling the game. It's very, very a stifling philosophy. Body line in the in, which which was the kind of seen as a, almost again another pivotal moment in the Ashes way back in nineteen uh, twenty nine was England went to, to counter Don Bradman. They went to Australia and just bowled at the, bot, the batsmen's bodies, right. and it became a huge. It was seen as unbecoming. It was a huge, huge sporting, uh, huge issue. Yeah. Now this wasn't seen like that, and but. Uh, Australia have their own. So there's kind of there's sort of plots within plots in this series, which okay. make it fascinating. Okay. Australia don't like the idea of baseball. They don't like this idea that England are this entertaining, um, you know, likable, likable team. team. Mm-hmm. 
that's not what Australia are about. Uh, and this is a, a likable Australian team in itself. But they have come into this without, without just going to win it. And they have a much more, they have a ferocious bowling attack. Mm-hmm. And today, as I was coming in here watching this on the way in, um, there was a moment of kind of, which, which actually ignited the, the day's play. The English batsman over-finished. The English batsman walked out of his crease at the end, what he thought was the end of the over. And the Australian wicketkeeper rolled the ball, threw the ball at his stumps. He was outside his stumps. He was outside his crease. Mm-hmm. And the umpire gave him out. Uh, Shane understood most of those words. It was basically, <laughs> basically, it was. It, this was seen as very. The crowd erupted, booing, uh, thinking Australians. They were chanting about Australia's cheating again. All right, okay. Uh, because you know Australia had the famous sandpaper gate thing a yes, couple of yes, years ago. Yes, the big scandal. Watch the test on Amazon Prime. That's a great. Uh, that's a very oh, good. Um, I must say, I, I I certainly don't dislike cricket, but I think am I right in saying your father imbued you with a great love? Yeah, of cricket? yeah, yeah. So I, I don't have that. I was never introduced to it in that way, but even to. So let me bring it back to the paper review in terms of some of the writing. Like Jonathan yeah. Liu a couple of weeks ago in a rain delay wrote a stunning piece about his, his yeah, that was incredible. non-existent relationship with his yeah. father which was just incredible and, and then the broadcasting. Mm. I mean I'm sure you associate Summers with cricket commentary yeah, in the yeah. background test match special. Yeah. Like it does produce lovely coverage. No it does. No it's yeah. wonderful. Like wonderful. that's the thing. Is and it like, still doing that? It's still doing that and actually I've um, you know, there's, there are still great cricket writers. Gideon Haig, the Australian writer, who's a, who's a great writer. I'm currently reading my second copy. I've already lost one copy of his new book on the ashes this summer, so I'm on my second yeah. copy of that. Uh, and he's, you know, he's a, a great writer on, on cricket. And they are, and they're, you know, no, I, I'm, and, but when you get into it in a, like, it is an extraordinary thing once uh, the obsession takes, because I was even thinking about coming in today, like, it becomes the exact opposite of what people, the stereotype about cricket. Every ball today, when I was watching it, it was just full of tension. Right. And something. You just, you're just going you know, everything hangs on this ball and then it hangs on the next one. And it's everything across areas. And, you know, and, then, and, and that's over, and then over days. So like you're in the final day. I am for some reason sitting here mm. on the final day. After four days Not of this. bitter about this at all. I was suggesting we record this in the morning, by the way, <laughs> if that makes you feel any better. And, uh, and you know, and then it's, uh, and, re- and building to this climax. But it is, but anyway, so that there is this, 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 this act of, uh, of what, what England now consider a lack of sportsmanship, getting this, getting Johnny Bairstow out today, okay. has now turned it against Stokes then, who, who's the, who was batting with great restraint because he's kind of, I've got to hold it all together. He then just turned around and scored 24 balls off the, like following over effectively mm. to get a century. Mm. Now, I don't know where. He's 151, not out. Is he? Yeah. What's the score, Joe? England needs 75 runs. How many wickets to left? Win the second test. 296 for six. They haven't lost any. That's incredible. That's absolutely Shane, incredible. Shane, that's incredible. Incredible. <laughs> I could have said there are 1,000 for 48. I, I, Shane I, would have said, oh, yeah, interesting. <laughs> Uh, I'm impressed you knew the answer. I, should, I, I, need, questions. To find, I need to find a reason to storm off. You are now. staring at the screen. Okay, I appreciate you being here. This is I, I didn't really. This is actually terrible, and I don't want to keep you from it. Um, <laughs> we've got to take a short break. We'll be back with the final thoughts and the final few pieces in just one moment. 
Uh, we're here with Shane Keegan of Cove Ramblers and Dion Fanning of the Free State Podcast going through the papers. I have uh, four last quick ones that we chalked down to try and hit in no particular order. Nadine Doherty on the continued unhappiness of female GA players in this country. Jonathan Wilson asking an interesting question. What is a football club? Uh, Nick Harris on uh, the Olympics and there's a piece on the, the bromance between... Lee McHale and Kevin McStay, which is very good, and Shane picked that out. I will just, uh, so the clock doesn't come against us, I will sum up the Olympics story in less than a minute, really. You might remember uh, about 10 years ago, all hell broke loose around Russian doping at various Olympic Games, and then there was that documentary Icarus, which is still on Netflix, I think, and it felt like a lot of people watched, where it was just, in a way, it was like the grimmest thing you could imagine, but on the other hand, it was just unbelievably exciting as the reality of the Russian plot around Sochi became apparent, where basically Grigory uh, Rychenko, uh, with the help of the uh, FSB, they're called now, but the KGB, would uh, build a tunnel and swap out the tainted urine for fake clean urine. And that was how Russia cleaned up at the Sochi Games. I mean... At the time, it felt like, are Russia really up to this kind of stuff? I, with the benefit of 10 years, I mean, I think uh, it's all far more believable in so many ways. But um, he's done an interview in the Mail on Sunday, just 10 years on from all that. And there was the famous McLaren report. And so uh, basically, if you wondered where Rachenko's ended up, he's very much in witness protection in the US. He has prosthetics, uh, surgery, uh, they wonder. But basically, he looks incredibly different to the images you'd have of him from 10 years ago. He's 64 years of age. He says he'll never see his family again. He'll never go back to Russia again. And uh, he doesn't think the sport, Olympic sports generally are any cleaner either. He thinks uh, Russia should have been banned 10 years ago. They weren't. It was all meaningless. And he wouldn't hold out too much faith that things were any any better on the cheating front. And uh, the guy who made the documentary with him, who was... They came together because he wanted, he's an amateur cyclist and he wanted to see if he doped, could he get much better. Kind of a crazy documentary in a way. But Brian Fogel, uh, he was, um, he says, there's no happy ending for Grigory or for whistleblowers in general. It's likely he'll never see his family again. Uh, he also, like Rachenko, flabbergasted that Russia was never banned properly for what they did. It is insanity that Russia has been able to continue competing. The International Olympic Committee has shown itself to be utterly corrupt. The Olympics have forever been tainted by the scandal. And uh, on it goes in that vein. As uh, Walden, who was part of the report at the time, says there was a moment when the IOC could have changed things for the better for clean athletes by banning the Russians. They chose not to. Other governing bodies are complicit. They want to make money. So it's all uh, very grim, grim across the uh, way, really. The criticism of doping is that they go for quantity over quality. So they can say they do lots of tests, but none of them really have much of a chance of catching anybody who has a brain, I think, is their summation. Rachenko says the underlying system for doping controls remains weak. Many innocent and clean athletes continue to be victimised by dirty ones, including those in state-sponsored doping regimes. Uh, He thinks that this Ukraine situation will be the end of Putin, and he's very hopeful of that. So... uh, not much of a silver lining in that piece. Uh, it was bad no. 10 years ago. He doesn't think it's much better. There no, and uh, like, you know, it's it's a familiar enough story yeah. in terms of like not, nothing being done, people get, getting away with things, people wanting to do no more than 
what is required to be seen to be doing something yeah. rather than actually doing something. But there is, of course, the other, as as is mentioned in the piece, like that it was the Saki Games that emboldened Putin then to go and uh, a few days later annex Crimea. Uh, no, so and I remember at the time people were when this all came out saying, "Well, God, if the Olympics aren't careful. People will really just abandon all faith, and it'll just become a bit of a mm. joke." I think ten years on, anyone really who's anyway clued in looks at the Olympic Games and thinks, "Like," but when it comes around, everyone like, and we we have people qualifying for the Olympics and all that. So there's still that allure of the Olympics. And it's funny, there's another piece, another piece on the next page in the Mail, I think about. Why do the enhanced games yeah. not take off? Mm. And uh, it's funny because we still, uh, we still want the the we still want the the, the pretense of what we're watching is is real. I feel like we get on the Irish bandwagon, celebrate that, and look Absolutely at everything else that. with yeah. a sense of well, I wouldn't trust it. And it's it's it mm. is, and it is such a pity, Joe, because if if we had a 100% guarantee that everybody at the Olympics was completely drug-free, it would be the greatest show on earth. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It, it, it is something we would yeah. absolutely yeah. love, but yeah. it's just, it's not that. No, you feel like a mug saying, did yeah. you see the 1500 yeah, race yeah, last yeah, night? Yeah. Wasn't it amazing? Yeah. Uh, so, well, that's where Ruchenko is. He's either had prosthetics or surgery and he's somewhere in witness protection, protection in the US and he moves around the uh, country. Do you remember that documentary and all that? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's very good. Um, so, uh, we'll finish in Jonathan Wilson the two GAA stories uh, you have Kevin McStay and Liam McHale opened there Shane you really like this piece I did yeah two Greg fellas yeah and and you were rightly making the point not to go go too hard on, on Mayo Dublin stuff but this isn't anything to do with Mayo Dublin um, so it's not this is sort the sort of piece that you could easily read at, at your leisure at any stage this week I should say for my sake not because I dislike Dublin or Mayo just no. clarify that yes yes um, and it's built primarily on Dermot Crow having a, a look back and building it on, on some of the passages from Kevin McStay's um, memoir but it actually tells us far far more about Lee McHale than it does about about Kevin McStay a um, couple of things I hadn't realised was so Kevin um, sorry Lee McHale is, was actually Kevin McStay's younger brother's best friend and that's how the, the initial kind of relationship he says I, I ended up uh, borrowing him from my brother Paul for a good portion of the last 20 years um, the bond is strengthened then by the fact that McStay's sister Sinead is McHale's wife so these two are really really connected guys um, but yeah it's the insight into McHale's coaching and, and personality that I found really really interesting in it he is a guy that has kind of often caught my attention I would tend to look past who the manager is quite often and see well who's the coach who's the one on the pitch doing the stuff um, and Mikhail absolutely extols Liam's um, credentials Liam 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 has a great basketball pedigree and the complexities of that game allow him to view football team quite differently and with greater clarity than most. Now, that became very in vogue over the last decade or so, I suppose, Joe, but, but I mean, Mikhail was doing it way, way back before it it, it became the, the, the hip thing to do, I suppose. Um, he talks about how much of a, a likeable guy he is. He's, he's always been a totally, totally unlike any stereotype of a coach very hard to describe how he does what he does but he's brilliantly effective with the players but Liam would never be seen with a flip chart or any other sort of paraphernalia that very very much um, reminded me of of Eamon O'Shea I've I've seen Eamon O'Shea coach a couple of times and you come away from watching him coach and you're like oh jeez he's amazing and then amazing at what Oh, well, it's just the way he kind of, you know, throws out one-liners here or does a little something. It's very hard to to pin it down, um, really, as to what 
what it is that makes some of the great coaches the the really great coaches. I actually had forgotten just how strong that that Mayo ticket is. I mean, it's utterly ridiculous. Yeah. Liam McHale, Donny Buckley, Stephen Rochford, all on the one coaching ticket. Um, all operating under away under Max Day, but yeah, it, it's his. I suppose his personality. They even though they click extremely well, and this is always the thing with a management um pairing. When I'm trying to find somebody to to work with me at at you know at League of Ireland or or whatever is trying to find somebody who's yin kir yang but yet you still fundamentally agree on the core kind of mm. principles and the core philosophy behind it all um and he says here you know Lee McHale he was born quite naturally a good cop I'm the other cop then because of that so maybe Max Day isn't the natural bad cop but needs to be because of 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 McHale's strengths I suppose um and the key line for me which it just is is the exact phrase you want to be able to say about anybody that you're working with is uh Liam has always had an easy confidence about him and the truth of it is that when I'm a, when I am in his company I am more confident about things working out have you ever met Mikhail I haven't my my dad lived with his brother for quite a while in London but I don't think I ever met Liam no I think you'd love him as well actually really yeah he is just the best yeah yeah, yeah. he's such a great fella honestly he'd be my sporting hero growing up Really? Yeah. My my mum's from Balna, so I spend a lot of time in Balna. There's oh. pictures of me from Yay High with Lee McHale. Um, really? And then getting to work on the show. Meet your heroes is my advice on the back of <laughs> McHale because he's so he's just so lovely and charismatic and gentle. And McStay says something there. I've never heard Lee McHale say a bad word about anyone in my life. Yeah. And like sometimes you ring, like Lee wears shorts 365 days a year, you know, and like <laughs> ring him when he, uh, to come on the show sometimes. He's like, oh yeah, I was just swimming in the Atlantic with my dog. One of those. He's living. He's living his best life. I think. Really. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing rattles him. Um. I mean, he. It, it, they do pass the comment here that look, if you win, you win. If you lose, you lose. He ain't going to get too stressed about it one way or another, which is a trait I would absolutely love to have, but certainly don't have. You know. Yeah. Uh. So, um, Nadine Darty on page eleven of Sunday Independent carries on this story from last week. We're seeing uh, more protests at GA games across the country, notably. Um, it is, and I think it is notable that the men haven't actually supported this protest. She's and calling I, them out on that here. She really is. I think when you see it in those terms, it's probably hard enough for the male players. They they don't have to make a, a specific statement, i.e. we want the GEA to suddenly pony up and pay the cost of the charter or we think integration has to happen by 2025. It doesn't have to be a specific statement, but it could simply be a statement of we support you and we yeah. hear you and... In case anyone's not following the ladies' football situation, but they do come to these male matches, here's a T-shirt that says "Equality or Unity for All." I mean, she puts that across very well, just yeah. by just the, the line of "It is expected that a total of 150,000 supporters will attend this weekend's All Ireland quarterfinals. Uh, it's likely that there'll be 5,000 at women's matches over the same period." Yeah, you know, the level of uh, the level of exposure this would get. I get, I get the point she's making there. The level of exposure, you know, is you know, astronomical. She does um, make the point. So the GEA, I think, increasingly are going to look at this and say, well, we're just not handing over money when we're at such an early stage of integration talks, is my sense. Yep. Because what if talks break down and we're, we, do we continue to pay the bill forever? Or do we pull out and all the complications? understandable stance by the I think, GEA. I think it is. It's not, not an easy situation, but I think it is. So Nadine Doherty makes the point, what the GEA do with their money is entirely their own choice. They're under no obligation to show any charity to their female counterparts meaning there is now an obligation on our government to intervene and work with the LGFA and Camogie Association on how funding can be allocated to facilitate a squad charter so maybe it will be governmental I've seen points as well about uh, there's going to be a big charity 
um, push. Maybe charity is the wrong word. Fundraising. And and like there's no shame in that because I mean, geez, they're all off in New York on the men's side raising huge sums of money. So maybe the LGFA and Camogie need to go to New York and raise their own money and, yeah. and look after their players that way. So either way, I think it probably has to get sorted because the, the protests, it, this just can't continue into next year. Yeah, look, very much so. And like it's, it's you know, it's very, very easy to just completely take Nadine's side here it's it's the easier thing to do is to say like sure it's a no-brainer that they, they have to be getting parity and I mean she very very cleverly you know goes about making her point by throwing out an example of uh, as a parent can you imagine the following scenario you send your little girl and her brother off for a week uh, to the cool camp and your boy comes home with the gear and the kit and the girl doesn't get that either or doesn't get either mm. uh, the boy trains on a pitch while the girl has to train on a patch of grass at the side of the car park mm. it's a clever way of putting it it doesn't unfortunately make any kind of address of the fact that well where is the money coming in from um, and again I suppose I'm now working out of the centre of excellence in, in, in Leash that we're lucky to have there's there's three pitches right I can tell you, Joe, on pretty much every given night of the week, all three of those pitches are in full use. Um, the hurlers, the senior hurling team might be training on one pitch, the senior football team might be training on another pitch, and there'll be some sort of underage game or, or club game going on on the third pitch. And that's pretty much all male sports. Mm. Now, if if Leash made a de- the decision in the morning that they wanted to, to give parity you know, to, to the women immediately... Like how how does that work? Like the, the you know the actual pitch space genuinely isn't there. Um, there's a huge you know logistical issue as to how if even if the willingness and want is there, which it should be. Yeah. How do you actually make this work? Like? Well, I think it's it's for that reason and many others that the likes of Dr. Katie Liston and uh, Connor Myler and Dr. Eva Lane are saying, well, this could be a five year thing. Mm. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I I look I. I yeah, I, I don't understand fully why the GA are getting, you know, I, I don't know if, you're, if they're getting a pass, but why they shouldn't be, if they are talking about integration, okay, you can say these aren't our members, but like, that's a kind of, <laughs> that's almost like an administrative point. Like when you, and when you say this, it's, it's when you talk about the pitches, it's the same thing. Like you either believe in, like it just has to, they, these things have to be affected, mm. you know, they have to be kind of done because, uh, like that's the way you know. You look at you look at the Irish women's team in the World Cup. You, you know, look look at look look at how look at where the momentum is going, even in terms of of interest and so it is going to grow. Now maybe the GA is different in that, but like in Irish terms, I think the amount of interest is growing in 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 football, in soccer, in the women's team tells you which way the wind is blowing on these things. And I I don't know how long you can. Uh, like you know, she does say about the GA do with, the, with their, that money is entirely their own choice, uh, and they are no un- under obligation to any charity to their female caterers. But like, they're the same, they're the same games. Like, who is going to, like, they're under different, they're under a different administrative umbrellas, but they're they, they're playing the same games. And but they are very different administrative umbrellas. Yeah, but like, the, like the the kickback, whether we like it or not, the kickback from GEA people would be so taking my example of the only way to free up pitch space in the centre of excellence for them to come in and train on or play on is to remove people who are currently on it so are we removing members from our facilities to allow non-members 
yeah. use of our facilities. I know that might sound a bit like no. I understand and, it, and, but and, that's and, what I mean. It gets bogged. You're, you're, no, I accept that totally. And when you, and, but at the same time, it's like, well, this there is something flawed if that's yeah. If the, if that's what if that's what is what if that's what it's come to, um, and it will come to that. But but look, this is. I actually think that, again. When anyone ever talks about this, and you know, I, you know, my, my, my son plays for a, a soccer club in Dublin, and like everything, like we're looking at next season, and it's like, do where are we going to play? We've got so yeah. many players, mm-hmm. uh, there's so many teams we want to put out, where are we going to play? And until actually, and this is never going to happen, so I might as well throw it until Irish sport actually is organized in a way that is beyond like each narrow vested interest and says, right, let's get facilities yeah. for everything. Yeah. yeah. And let's share these facilities yeah. in a meaningful way, yeah. and let's take the 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 um, that sort of territorial uh, side of it out of it, yeah. and actually somehow do something. Like nothing's going to change because everybody, every sport is organised on this self-defeating principle that we give nothing. You know, our starting point is we give nothing to anybody else. And mm-hmm. I know I'm I'm arguing against myself here in saying like they are one hundred percent taking the right stance because. They, you know, something has got to change. Mm. The conditions that they are expecting to be operating under are absolutely ridiculous. I, I suppose the point I'm just not making is there, there isn't an easy fix. No, Nobody no, should no, think I, that there's an you're easy dead, fix. You're dead right to raise that point because I think on a macro level, everyone's in agreement. Now let's get down to brass yeah. tacks. What happens to that pitch on Tuesday? Yeah. And that's where the, the, the cooperation will be tested. I think it's it's interesting to take your point, on. So say the GEA say, look, it's just we can't just we're not doing that until talks are complete and we're we're coming to these talks in good faith. And if it takes a year or two or three, that's the way it's going to be. It might be interesting if government say, well, look, to Dion's point, we're giving X to Gaelic games at large, given that the integration isn't happening as hastily as we would like. And given that you guys have millions and you guys don't have anything, we're going to stop funding you Mm all that money and we're going to direct that to the women's game because it does kind of seem like you can stand on your own two feet GA you don't pay your players and you're doing remarkably well yeah. and GA goes a big success <laughs> um, so the government might step in and say we can't, we just can't have this we yeah. need parity on, on like again these are basics the but, but it, basics. it does come back to a bit of the, uh, what the FAI's recent plan you know and looking for the money mm. they're looking for but a lot of they, they stressed on that a lot of it was for for facilities that would be used for all sports yeah. and that's the way uh, that's the way it has like you know for for, for obvious historical reasons uh, that's not the way sport has been organised mm. in Ireland mm. but you you know like I know people uh, like you know where again where I am like people involved in teams who, who, who brought up in different countries and they're like this is kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah, this is crazy. That, and isn't uh, it lovely when you go to like a French town and the municipal sports centre yeah, is there yeah. with pitches and swimming pools and everyone uses it and it just makes a lot of sense. As, especially small towns in Ireland having the soccer pitches down there and our club is up here. And, say about that, and also, like, and you'll talk to small, like, you know, things being scheduled against each other. Yeah. So that you can't, you can't actually do like. Two of the worst organizations, yeah. organizations for that are the Camogie Association oh. versus the LGFA. Yeah. yeah. Honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, don't be under the illusion that the GEA are great. Oh and no, no. The two like, female, yeah, yeah. And the two female have great relations, it. and it's one versus two. Yeah, it's yeah. like one versus one versus one yeah, half yeah. the time. And like the thing that, and this is the thing, and this is you know, shame to notice better, better than anyone. Like the thing that needs to be stressed in that kind of territorial grab for players almost yeah. is that you're actually the more uh, 
the more sports anybody plays, the better for all of them, for their development. Like that, every study has shown that. Yeah. That, you know, if you go and trying to grab one player and say, we want you for soccer or we want you for Gaelic football or for hurling or whatever. You want a good penalty taker in your GAA very, team. Very, very quickly on that one, Joe, our, our 15s yesterday were hurling against Dublin 15s in the centre of excellence. Okay. And as I come in... There was this a, is Leash versus Leash, Dublin. Leash against Dublin under 15. Yeah. Um, as I come in, with one of the, the midfielder for Dublin scored an unbel- absolutely outstanding goal and continued to be the best player on the pitch. He came across at half-time and took off his helmet. I know that face and I did a, a quick Google the guy's name is, is Billy O'Neill he scored a hat-trick for Ireland under 15s against Wales last month in soccer God I hate him <laughs> best hurler on the pitch yesterday my country Myers. disgusting <laughs> we, uh, won't, we, won't, crazy, we won't get into it? cricket's roots for hurling in this country you know how they yeah, laid well, the I think we all agree let's not fun cricket let's not go crazy <laughs> um, right we have five minutes to try and uh, sum up what's a very nuanced uh, thoughtful piece so Jonathan Wilson it's in the Observer uh, Sunday Independent have it as well. Uh, soccer has become an exploited commodity. He's tr- he, the first sentence of his piece. What is a football club? Uh, one of those questions seems simple, turns out to be extremely difficult to answer. He says, and he charts the history from mid to late nineteenth century, and then it becomes apparent people will pay into watch, and they'll be partisan, they'll support teams. Provincial self-assertion was the great driver of early football. Factory owners, mine bosses, funded clubs from the industrial cities of the English North and Midlands looking to elevate their home through football. Uh, That led to the beginnings of a disconnect, obviously. Um, 1981 is interesting. Until 1981, dividends were capped at 7.5%. No director could be paid by the club. Clubs were not seen as profit-making entities. 1981, that changed. I hadn't realised that. Mm. And, um, well, then we're into just the mad world we're into now where there are substantial dividends and there is sports washing and there are a a whole array of complications. Um, He says, as traditional industries have declined, the football club's role as emblems of their community have become increasingly important. They offer a nostalgic link to the past uh, generations. He says, modern football clubs are also vehicles for the profit of an outsider, whether that is economic or political. And he kind of finishes by touching on multiple ownership, which is now like a new frontier, Mm. I think. It was complicated enough 10 years ago, but now multiple ownership. He says that has really brought the issue of what a club should be into focus. Uh, He says it's impossible to truly be Strasbourg if you're also part of Greater Chelsea. Or it's impossible to be truly Palermo if you're part of City Football Group. Um, in them it's uh, is laid bare the bifurcated nature of the modern club they are vessels for memory and emotion ciphers for often profound feelings of belonging and identity and yet at the same time they are businesses governed by the whims of the very rich that is the problem of modern football everything is bought and sold even that sense of communal identity the vital force that's driven the game for a century and a half has become just another commodity to be traded and uh, exploited so uh, I, I'm guessing Jonathan Wilson doesn't love where uh, the modern football club is or what is a modern football club Dion? Well I don't think anybody loves where, where the modern football no. club is apart from, well that's not true there's plenty of people on Twitter who disprove that uh, Newcastle fans Manchester City fans who seem t- entirely happy yet incredibly angry at their at their lot so uh, I think you know it's, it's a depressing piece really in in 
in, you know, and it goes back to, you know, we talk about, like he talks about there, you know, he says, Sheikh Mansour is not investing in Manchester nor Saudi, Saudi Arabia's public investment fund in Newcastle out of the goodness of their hearts. And, you know, again, we come back to like that Saudi kind of grab for sport that is kind of overshadowing so much of, of sport today. But I, I don't know, like there is no, I don't, I, that, like are you being simply just uh, a nostalgist if you look back now because there's nothing, there's no, there is no going back. Like, you know, you talk about 1981 and it's funny how many things in how many war areas, like, you know, the deregulation yeah, of the economy. It really all is. All these things that happened around that period. And you, uh, the unforeseen circumstances, yeah. uh, consequences, perhaps. Yeah. And it's, um, it's, uh, it's hard to, you know, and I, you know, while some, you know, while, while football in, in many ways, you know, everyone, again, like everyone gets sucked into transfers and the season mm. starting and yet it becomes harder and harder uh, when you see Manchester City doing what they've done, when you see Newcastle rising yeah. um, to, and you see the appetite among, Man, uh, you know, a, a large section of Manchester United fans for the Qatar yeah. takeover because that's the solution they see to it um that you kind of think well what's what is you know what what is what, what where is where, where where is the place for for uh you know just any kind of sort of idealism or yeah. kind of innocent view of sport now and I think he gets to it here. Like there is an argument. Like it, it is worse. And I'm not saying this is just a continuation. I'm not making our, you know, I'm not going to make some kind of version of the poor Harrington argument about Ireland and mm. Saudi Arabia. Mm. But like, there is always a tension as he lays out between the professional and the and the merchant class who own football clubs and yeah. the you know as he says the communities. Uh, you know, they were never owned by the people who they meant so much to, or words to that effect. Like, and that was always the tension mm. within football. But it's now, um, it's now a to- of a totally different yeah. level. Like I, I haven't loved the wealthy um, billionaire owner or the state owner of the last decade, but where even I can't, you, at least that was an extension of Jack Walker. It's just much, much richer. But like this notion that they have a whole portfolio of clubs all around the world like the 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 notion of city football group for me i'm just like this whole thing is just nonsense now just why does that i like yeah like you see you know i i don't why does that uh in particular i'm, I'm, I'm not going to disagree I, with you but I, why I, does that like it's not it's not romantic but at least i like the idea of all these football clubs are competing against each other in a very true way independent of each other totally independent of each other whereas like these clubs now hoovering up all the talent in London Mm. sharing them out farming them out to their other 10 clubs dodging financial fair play as a result bringing them back as they choose completely crushing the opposition therefore in their own in London and wherever Mm. they're farming the clubs out and like then like you're pretty similar kind of like similar clubs and knockout stages Champions League or Champions League group stages and you're like well I can't lose either way because um, they're, we're all we're all of City football group and and like all Seferin and UEFA can say is yeah the horse probably bolted on that one yeah at least if it was a bunch of rich 
folk fighting it out. At least they'd still be fighting it out. <laughs> I now need to check. Who billionaire versus these? billionaire, rather yeah. than uh, state v state. Billionaires, two toys playing each other. I look, yeah, you know, state right. Even but if, I think, I even think if one of the things it does, it also, but I, like, you know, just, it does, it, sh- it does just, the, the, the one of the comforting myths, and you saw this around the, uh, when the Super League, which I think, like the Super League, as they attempted, it was so flawed and so badly planned mm. that actually, you know. But as time goes on, you're going. There, there was a way of doing that that actually made sense. Better logo. Better, better logo. Tottenham probably not being in it. Uh, a couple of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm Shane. Here, yeah, I know. I'm sorry, but uh, but like the, the, one of the things people were talking about the football pyramid then this this shatters the football pyramid that football pyramid was a lie <laughs> I know like, and one, the one thing I'll say and I'm not I, I agree with you about multi-club ownership but the one thing it does is it kind of just makes points out that again just underlines what a lie the football pyramid is because you're almost saying like this club that we own here will have no has, will never never in a, in a million years yes. can dream Okay, of actually yeah, re- yeah, really yeah. all you are this is your place in the world and you know and again that's what, what's wrong with it mm. but it is actually just dealing in an ultra pragmatic way by saying this is your role in life yeah. to, to, to host players for us to develop them for us to do things for us and you, you, can, you can ask for no more that's a very good point yeah that's true we've now got a version of that in Ireland yeah Hull owning Shelburne. Shelburne yeah yeah how do you feel about that? Um, don't know. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out over the next year because we've got a great um, barometer of it in Damien Duff because if Duff has been told this is how we do it at Hull so this is how you have to do it he'll, he'll, he'll take that quietly it. will no. <laughs> By God he will not. Uh, fellas we are time. Thank you so much. So Shane Keegan of Cove Ramblers and Dion Fanning of the Free State Podcast. Thank you both very much for coming in. Uh, Derry have beaten Cork by four points. We'll be across to Paddy Andrews in just a moment. Is that Crow Park ahead of Dublin Mayo as well?